Hello and welcome to Literally Gagging. This is a podcast where we find lots of famously very sexy books and we're going to analyse them, we're going to delve into them, we're going to see how sexy they are, we're going to see how much sex you can fit into 700 pages. That is what we're doing this week. So if that doesn't sound like something that you want to listen to, if you're not feeling very sexy at the moment, that's absolutely fine. This may not be the podcast for you. My name's Hannah and as always I'm here with my co-host Molly. How are you this week Molly? Hi Hannah. I am boiling my tits off. Oh my god, it's too fucking hot. It's too hot. Too hot today. It is too hot. I do not like it. I am too ginger and I burn. I'm just sweaty. I'm just a sweaty, sweaty lady. And I can't I can't cope with it. It's too much. No, I just can't cope. Everything's damp. It's like hotter outside than it is in my house. So it doesn't really matter where I am. I'm just too hot. I do have my windows open and I'm going to apologise because if I closed them, I would die in this room. But for some reason, loads of scallies love to yell outside of my flat. There's like a little train line alleyway and so there's either going to be a train or some sort of scally yelling something at some point on this recording and i can only apologize but it's too fucking hot to care do you have anything else to report or are we just too hot is that the main headline just of the week? too hot i honestly don't remember any of last week i feel like last week just disappeared were you drunk or just furlough like that furlough haze i was fucking editing the back passage for ten thousand years <laughs> i am so impressed that i managed to get it down to like an hour and a minute because I thought it was going to be an hour and a half honestly so much quality content I cut some absolute comedy gold we will just do a clip show which is all the weird shit we say out of context at some point when we've run out of books you'll get a clip show instead and what are you drinking this week Miles? I am drinking a Van de France Crusette Rosé it's not bad delicious what have you got? I've got a Budweiser. A Budweiser. Because I'm a basic bitch. Get your buds out for the lads. It's because co-op are currently doing two pizzas and a four pack of bud for a fiver. That's really good. That's really good. Like a, That's the pizza really good. alone is like three pound fifty. Yeah. So good if it's co-op. still on, get yourself to co-op because it's really good. Yeah. Night. Get yourself down to co-op. Support them. They seem to be good lads. Co-op are good lads. Every now and then I debate running for a member of their like council or whatever, because you can just be on the co-op council i don't know why i think that that's my calling in life what book are we covering today we're gonna get straight into it because there's gonna be quite a lot to say for some reason all the sexy books in the world are like 700 pages long so we're back on another riders vibe if it was written in the 1980s and it's trying to be a little bit risque it will be upwards of 600 pages it's another one which is a bit of a saga a bit of a soap opera so this week we are reading lace by shirley conran and i'll run a little bit through about her and then there's a little bit i want to say as well about her in relation to the book because she's Ooh. kind of very famously said that a lot of this is lifted from her own life in many really? ways. Really? Oh my god, I'm excited. I did not know this. Shirley Conran was born in 1932. She was mostly known as a journalist. She wrote for Vanity Fair. She became the fashion editor at The Observer. She was the women's editor at The Daily Mail. This book was published in 1982, so she was 50. It sent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and was turned into a miniseries. She's written other books. She wrote a sequel to this, which from what I can see looks trash. Probably don't bother with it. It sounds like she was beating a dead horse a little bit. My mother-in-law did not approve. But she has written other things as well. 
and that's my little bit and I'm going to flip to the back because in the there's an epilogue at the back of my edition where she talks about how this like relates to her and she said that lace is based on my own life my own experiences my own friends only the plot is a complete invention she said that a lot of the action in this book is actually watered down from stuff that really happened or stuff she was aware of happening. And she goes through and says which of her friends all the characters were based on, which I don't really care about because I don't know the oh friends. Oh my God, like spill that tea though, Henny. So that's kind of three of the characters covered. And then she said that a lot of people have asked her who the fourth character is in real life. And she'd never really considered that it was a version of her other than the fact that this woman was a journalist. Mm. Possibly the most interested person was my ex-husband who told me that he'd paid his lawyer to read the book to check that there was nothing libelous about <gasps> him in it. And she was like, imagine paying a lawyer to spend 10 hours reading this book. Nice work if you can get it. Yeah. She used to be the women's editor for the Daily Mail. And then she had to give up journalism because she got a chronic illness and she couldn't work for years. And eventually she was just living in like a tiny little basement flat, writing lace and not really having a great deal of money. And then Lace set a European record for an advance for a first novel. For the advance she got, plus a movie sale, she got over a million dollars. Ooh, that's a lot of dollar. The phrase she used was, one day I was a single mother of two young sons with not enough money to buy bicycles for them. Then suddenly I was world famous and had a million dollars in the bank. I'm sorry, I didn't have enough money to buy bicycles for them. That doesn't tug at my heartstrings, babe. <laughs> <laughs> We can survive without a bike. But I think one of the big themes of this book, and she says it here, is don't let anyone tell you that money isn't important. It is if you haven't got any. Completely. That's a good point. And the reason that I realised it got so famous was because it was speaking to something that women didn't often get to talk about. And I'll read this out because I just thought this was really well written. When I wrote Lace, the average man thought the clitoris was a Greek hotel and the average <laughs> woman didn't know how to enlighten him. The contraceptive pill had just appeared, but few women felt sexually self-confident. Girls were hesitant and confused about sex at a time when they were expected, to, it's a Jackie Collins thing, women were expected to have a lot of sex without having ever had a lot of sex before. So this is the book that she wrote in response to that to teach people this about sex and relationships. And then this bit, just like absolutely got me at the end she was like it's a book that not only describes sex but explores the feelings and the emotional aspects of sexual encounters relationships and love yet to me above all else lace has always been a book about friendship it shows that close women friends can share important life experiences and support each other in ways that a man cannot and that is the reason why it will always be here for future generations and i was like surely surely babe and I think that's one of the big things I did get from this is this, as much as this is a sexy book that has a lot of sex in it and famously is very saucy, it's about four women and the love that they have for each other and how much more important that Completely. is. And I love that. In the book, they talk about friendship and sort of say it's always there when you need it with them. Like they have that sort of friendship, which I know I have with a lot of my friends where even if we don't speak for like three months, we just pick back up again, like it, and have a quick catch up. And I highlighted it because I thought it was written it exactly spoke to like how a lot of my friendships are. It said friendship expands to fill the space that it's given. So like if yes. you can give it a lot of space, then it'll fill that. But if it only has a little bit of space, then that's it'll no less still fill that. valid. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely, Shirley Horn, I love it. I love, I love it. it completely. So before we actually dive into it, we do have to do some trigger warnings. So many trigger warnings at the top of this show. 
So there will be timestamps in the show notes, but at some point in this episode, there are going to be trigger warnings for abortion, rape, incest, and miscarriage. If any of those are issues that you wouldn't want to listen to, then I will mark which timestamp is for which issue. Um, There will also be a spoiler alert for the end because this book has famously one of the best lines i think when it was in the miniseries it was voted like one of the best tv lines oh my ever, god it's so good which is the setup for the whole book so if you don't want the answer to the question that it's going to ask i'll put a spoiler at the end as well so check the show notes everything you need is going to be there but just prepare yourselves for a whole load of trigger warnings in that so lace is a book about four women four five five, five women five women five women Four of them who are BFFs. And one who comes in to sort of mm, throw a little cat Spice on the pigeons. Up. The book actually opens with an abortion. Quite a graphic abortion. Yeah, like it's 1963 in Paris and the way she described it, I could feel the horrible metal utensils inside of me scraping. Mm. When you learn that she's also 13. They don't say she's 13 until later and they keep referring to her as the child during it, which is just so, like, even more unsettling than having a really graphic abortion on the first page of a, a sexy book. And then that's it. And we meet the four main characters. So the four main characters are all on their way to a New York hotel room to meet the famous actress called Lily. Which is the name of the 13-year-old getting the abortion at the start of the book. And then we go to 1978 and they're all travelling to meet her. But they don't know that the other women are also travelling to meet her. Lily's trying to get them into the room under false pretenses. She's given each of them like a different reason why she's going. So first off we meet Maxine. Maxine is a French comtesse who's an interior designer and she thinks she's going to see Lily on on the prospect of doing some interior design for one of her houses. So as a comtesse, it means she has a chateau and some land. On her land, there is a vineyard full of champagne and she's just a general business French woman. The second woman we meet is Judy. Judy comes from a working class background in America. She owns her own PR company and a magazine and she is again another ruthless businesswoman. But she's on the bus you can see that like Judy's relatable because she's getting the bus there. And the third woman is Pagan. Pagan who has travelled from Cornwall. She talks about how Cornwall's very cold, that's the main thing that Pagan talks about. And that she doesn't get on very well with her mother, that's one of the big things is her relationship with her family. Straight off the bat. She loved her grandfather, she doesn't get on with her mum. But her husband isn't very well, he can't travel and she's doing some fundraising for her husband so Lily has offered to give them a large donation and that is why she has come by herself to this meeting and then we get Kate she's already in New York so she's not had to travel and she has written a book which is going to be a bestseller again all these women are just like absolutely smashing it that seems to be the main thing that you need to take away they're all successful career women Kate has been summoned to go and see Lily because she thinks she's going to get like a big exclusive from her because she is a writer she's the journalist and she's looking for a story those are the characters they all get into the hotel room and it's a bit of a bamboozle as to why all them are there together they aren't expecting to see each other and then out walks lily 
and she says, I, this is one of the best lines I have ever read. So good. I hadn't heard of this before I'd read Lace. Like, it was very new to me. If you were aware of Lace already, then you probably already know this because this is the most famous bit. But to me, it was like mind-blowing. Lily comes out, looks all of them up and down and goes, which one of you bitches is my mother? Mamma Mia in this shit. We love it. I am here for the drama. I love it so much. It was so good. I was like, oh my God, what have we picked? This is incredible. And then we go straight back to the year 1948. We're going back 30 years. We're in Switzerland. We're at a boarding school and we are being introduced to all the characters as teenagers. Pagan, Kate and Maxine are all at the boarding school. Pagan is traditional upper class, so she's got the title but no money. Kate is new money, so she hasn't got the title but she's got the money. And Maxine is just affluent and French. And they meet Judy because Judy gets like trapped on a mountain or some shit like that. That was a whole thing, yeah, where like Judy had fallen off the edge of a mountain and Pagan saved her. And then she ran away and they were like, rude, we just saved your life. But there's a lad with Judy who's called Nick, who is like, oh, we work at this hotel that's just like over the way. She's She had to go to work. Otherwise she'll lose her job. Come to the hotel, she'll want to say we'll thank explain you explain it all. And that's how this little group gets formed. They all become best friends. But we learn even more of a backstory, which we wouldn't go into, but because it explains this one character's particular traits later on. So Pagan and Kate have been at the same like boarding school in the UK together and they're best friends and they sort of convince their parents to go off to this finishing school in Switzerland together and we learn that Pagan's mother sexually assaults Kate. Yeah when she's a teenager not cool. It says here that she bent down so Kate could see the white line where her hair was parted. Her tongue moved swiftly like a snake's towards Kate's nipple while her fingers slipped into Kate's crotch with a strength that was once painful and exciting. For a few moments, Kate felt erotically hypnotised. Then her knees buckled and she slid to the floor, pushing the woman away. Gasping, she brought one knee up to her chin and prepared to kick if Mrs Trelawney pounced again. Kate said nothing, but her eyes glittered with fear and anger. The uncomfortable few minutes was destined to have a far-reaching effect on Kate's future love life, when in the passionate embrace of a man, she felt almost unbearable sexual excitement and then fear, repulsion and shame. Poor Kate, your first sexual experience is your friend's mum. Your mate's mum who's like had a bev and is getting a bit handsy. Because she's a lesbian but couldn't be because she grew up in the 20s and you take it out on like your daughter's friend. No, hun. No, it was really gross. And it was literally because this was like 44 pages in. We've already had a really graphic abortion. We've already had a Mamma Mia scene and now we're getting this. I was like, what the fuck is this book? It's so wild. What is happening? (laughs) But this sort of sets up Kate's sexual predilection for the rest of the book. So all of them are like typical 15-year-old girls in a boarding school. There's the usual shenanigans. And I thought she nailed that really well. She did. She did do it good. They're all like talking about sex and who's done what with who. and then But they're also talking about like diets and what they're going to do when they're older and clothes and going to parties. And that was all really well done, I think. But eventually they do get round to boys, bang, boys. Bang. That was me trying to be Charlie <laughs> X. CX. So Kate meets a boy at the male equivalent of a finishing school. I think it's a have to be a white entitled asshole school. <laughs> and like most 17 year olds, he wants sex and pressures her 
into it, which she's a bit uncomfortable because she's like, if you loved me, why would you make me do these things? And I guess love is giving yourself over physically and he's just like, I want to see tits. So they strip down and she's just so naive. She's like, he didn't seem to realise that his thing was showing. The lavender pink penis reared up from its nest of black hair, balls wobbing beneath it. How ugly it was, thought Kate. He just sort of like thrusts it in. There doesn't seem to be any foreplay. He's just on top grunting. And that fear of when you are like 15, 16, as a girl, you are so terrified of getting pregnant and you're so terrified of spunk. She says he collapsed on top of her and Kate felt a stickiness trickling over her collarbone and down her neck. She knew what it was and she didn't dare move in case some of the stuff got in the wrong place. She was terrified. How did he get it on her neck? What was he doing? I've got no idea what he was doing. One bit as well, which I'd totally forgotten about until I was just flicking through now, is the bit where it talks about like how they all didn't know they were masturbating at a young age. Yeah. Girls don't know that, do they? No, and that was it. It says, none of them had heard of masturbation or knew that they'd already done it. Maxine was like wriggling in a chair during scripture class and she thought she experienced religious ecstasy. (laughs) Oh, hun. Pagan went hunting on a horse with a particularly high-fronted saddle and thought she was just having a great time at the hunt. Fucking horsey girls. This is what Jilly Cooper was chatting about, mate. Kate loved the climbing ropes they had to do in school. And it says here, once she'd had this feeling right at the top of the rope and had hung there swaying, blissfully frozen, unable to move and heedless of the cross-clipped voice of Miss Haycock, the instructress who was used to girls being frozen at the top of the ropes. (laughs) I was like, yes, I love that. That was cute. I liked, even if it's just quite a brief paragraph, I liked that was addressed because I think it is something that isn't spoken about a great deal and particularly for women when they do start actually masturbating they go oh i've been doing this for years i don't know what what it was called called? all of their first sexual experiences are very teenagey but also not really knowing very much and that being taken advantage of by the men in their lives kate and francoise is quite like fumbly and teenagey it is whereas Maxine's kind of first time is with a professional skier and there was so much skiing chat that I was like I don't give a fuck about any of it. I was so bored. But when Maxine has sex with a skier for the first time it's a bit grim. He sort of like coerces her into it and then he's like yeah you're right you're really young aren't you and it's like you probably shouldn't have had sex with her then you fucking weirdo. But that's also going to make her more self-conscious isn't it if you say oh you're really young maybe I shouldn't have sex with you. And it's going to make her want to work harder to impress you which is dodgy. I liked her naivete again this is something that she writes so well in it the skiers got naked and she risked a furtive peep downwards and froze again the size when you've not done it before you're like oh no thank you is that gonna go in is that meant to go in oh my god is that gonna be in so whilst maxine is busy banking mr ski switzerland pagan has met a guy called abdullah who is the Prince of Sidon. I don't think Sidon's a real country. I think it's meant to be Syria. It's basically a chance later on for Shirley Comrant to go quite deep on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Which we're not going to get into here. We are really not equipped. So he is staying at the hotel in Switzerland that Judy works in, and he starts courting Pagan. But Pagan's mum and her granddad and Nick. So Nick went to Eton with him and gave warnings that are like, 
don't get too involved with him because he is using white women as a revenge for all the things white men have said to him. It's like he doesn't really respect white women. He just wants to use them to get back at white men who have belittled him. He's very wary of Pagan kind of hanging out with him. She never has sex with Abdullah, even though he really wanted to. She doesn't accept any gifts from him apart from this riding cloak. I think it's almost like he sees her as like a challenge and quite exciting. And she's just kind of like having a great time being friends with the prince. We also find out that he went to like Karma Sutra school. Yeah, when he was 12, he got sent to sex camp. He spent like three weeks with a sex legend. And it will come up later that Abdullah's a sex god. That is important. But because she can't have sex with him, she is the lookout for all the other girls when they go banging. So Maxine has gone out to bang the... Skier. Don't know what his name is. Don't care what his name is. He was boring. Pagan's like, shit, she's missed curfew. Kate, you stay and look at the door and let us back in. I'll go out and find her. They get caught by the headmaster's chauffeur. This was real. The headmaster and the chauffeur actually happened. Did it? No fucking way. So... The headmaster and the chauffeur are apparently a couple, but what they do is they trap the girls who go to the finishing school. The chauffeur lures them in because the girls are thirsty AF and he's apparently fit. And then he drugs the girls and he takes like sexy photos of them together. And then the headmaster blackmails their parents. He uses it to get really hefty donations out of their rich daddies. The chauffeur captures them and Pagan sort of takes the bullet and says to Maxine, right, you go home, I'll go with Paul, the chauffeur. And she goes back to his gaff and he gives her a drink and it's laced with something because she wakes up, she's naked and she's handcuffed to the bed. Yeah. She's no idea what's happened. It's not graphic, whatever, you don't get a lot of it, but it's because she wakes up in the aftermath of it, not knowing what's happened to her, which is fucking grim. He's taking photos and eventually she's like, oh, can you just let me loose so I can go for a wee, otherwise I'll wet myself. And she escapes, but as she escapes, she takes something incredibly valuable with her. Boom, boom, boom. Something incriminating, which will become important later. So she goes back to normal. They talk about how the resilience of youth, she gets over it in 10 days, apparently. She doesn't tell anyone either. She's like, they would feel bad that I like took that bullet for them to bang their boyfriends. So they don't need to know. And I was like, honey, please tell your friends things. But it all kind of comes to a head on Valentine's Day. And teenage girls fucking love Valentine's Day. Oh, they fucking love it. They are buzzing off all those like heart-shaped cushions and what are those bears called? Like meat? to you best and then the 18 year old version of that was something from pandora so valentine's day comes along and there's a massive ball the prince abdullah is really pissed off because he thinks he's gonna get it and pagan is still like no you're never gonna get it not this time kate's pissed off and sad because francois is flirting with some greek twins the bit that i liked is that they're not allowed to drink they're all drinking like fruity cocktails with umbrellas in them and kate's upset and she comes back in she's redone her makeup it just says it brought out the irish in kate and she beckoned to the waiter 
Nick, get me a double something. She said, there's a darling. And I was like, hun. What a legend. It brings out the Irish in her. I'm sorry. I'm going to start saying there's a darling to people. I think that's going to be There's a darling. Kate then decides that she's going to bang Nick because he's slightly sympathetic towards her. And because Nick really fancies Judy and Judy's not about it. Judy's not about a man. She knows she's got a career plan. She came from a poor background. The only reason she's out there is because her pastor wrote to someone and got her this gig. She knows this is her chance out of bumfuck America. So they decide they're going to bang. And Maxine is obviously going to go bang her Swiss skier. So Pagan's like, as always, I'm wingmanning everyone. I'm going to go home. I'm going to sit up and wait for you to get home to let you back in. You go and have a nice time. So then Nick and Kate, they really try. He kissed her with all the pent-up ardour of his 18 years and the accumulated anxiety and pain of the last eight months. That kiss seemed to last for half an hour. He just seems sad. Yeah, Kate and Nick just try to have, like, pity sex with each other and it's really sad. Like, neither of them want to be there. She felt soft little pouches and limp flesh against the palm of her willing hand, which Nick again removed. They both felt embarrassed. They neither of them knew what to do next. In a frenzy of misery, they threw their arms around each other and cuddled tenderly as friends, warm and comforted by each other's arms. But they both felt sad. Oh, baby girl. We don't like that. We don't love that for anyone. But then Kate and Maxine head back to school and when they get there, Pagan is sat up with the matron and the headmaster and they've been caught out. They are getting the bollocking of a lifetime. The headmaster's shouting at her and he's like, you chase every pair of pants in town. At which the Irish and Kate rose again and she replied, so do you, monsieur. To be Irish, does that mean you have to be drunk and sassy? Drunk and ballsy. Drunk and angry? Drunk and ballsy. Drunk and ballsy, that's Irish. I'm one generation off getting an Irish passport. I'll take it. So Kate's being Irish being a little ballsy bitch and we love it and the headmaster says that he's going to expel them all and Pagan's like no you're not going to expel anybody and she's like I'm friends with Paul and he took me to his house and he showed me some of his photos and so I took some and it's you and Paul in some compromising positions sir and I feel like you're going to want me to keep that information to myself so maybe don't expel all of us and he says I trust that you realise the seriousness of this and so it won't happen again it's just lucky that none of your set is pregnant now get to bed all of you they cut off and they're like oh my god smashed it we're absolutely got out of that and then it says there was no need for further anxiety they thought as they wearily undressed but they were wrong and so was the headmaster because one of the set was pregnant and i said at that point i wrote right now my money's on maxine she seems to be the one most likely to produce a film star baby and plus teenage lily had her abortion in france so that was my sleuthing i uh, did the bad thing and i went to wikipedia straight away i'm not going to comment until we get to the end i'm honestly so proud of myself for how long i've been reading this book and i didn't it's what half per six now i found out who the mum was at half past two this afternoon i've known this for like the four weeks <laughs> i know you have and it's, I, I feel like every time we've spoken about it you've been like where are you up to i'll admit what happened so i googled who the mother was and then i read the last three pages of the book to confirm my suspicion it was very confusing we'll reveal what i really thought at the end because i spoiled it for myself and everyone else so the bit at the beginning we start with lily and them and then we get school and then we run essentially the next 25 years of their lives 
parallel and lots of things happening. So what we're going to do is we're going to take each of the five women and we're going to go through their storyline and be like, this is what happens to boom, boom, boom and dive in on a couple of sexy bits because there is a lot of sex in this. There's a lot of sex, which is good. Some of it's good sex. Some of it's upsetting some sex. Some of it's not so good sex. But it is, again, for the 80s, pretty bloody sexy. It was pretty raunchy, Yeah. So should we start with Judy? After Gustat, she moves to Paris and she becomes BFFs with Maxine's rich Aunt Hortez. Aunt Hortez is who I want to be in life. She is fucking amazing. You're such an Aunt Hortez. She married rich, he died young, she got all the dollar, no kids. She goes around buying Dior, wearing green eyeshadow. Aunt Hortense loves the fact that Judy is American, so like says what she thinks. I think my favourite thing about particularly this period of the book, but I mean Judy in general, and which absolutely goes against the point of this podcast, her time in Paris... Paris, the city of love, is basically sexless because she's working on her career. Yes, she is. She gets put in touch with one of Maxine's friends who's an up-and-coming designer. Guy Saint-Saëns. Yes, who is gay. And that's like a big thing. Yeah. Is the only person she knows in Paris pretty much is, is this gay designer. So she's just out there building up Guy's career, smashing everything left, right and centre. We should say at this point in the book, we learned that Nick the lovely guy who fancied Judy, but she was like, nah, maybe another time. He goes off to fight in, I'm gonna say it's the Korean War because he dies in Malaysia, or as they call it, Malay. And everyone's like absolutely fucking devastated, but Aunt Hortense is like, get the fuck up, get out there. He wouldn't want you to moan. Judy like locks herself in her room for four days straight and doesn't eat anything, doesn't talk to anyone to the point where Guy has to like have someone break her door down because they think she's died in there. So that's very sad. But she's going around, she's building up Guy's career and it's all going really well until her mum in America gets ill and she has to go back to America and start, not quite start all over again because she has some good connections from Paris who help her get on her feet in New York. Basically, Judy becomes a PR legend. That's what she does. That's what I've written down. She starts working for the Wool Council, the Wool Institute. She works for Wool and she moves to New York, but as part of her job, she has to tour all around America to promote Wool because remember children, there was no social media at this point. So it's not like she could just post the outfits on the um, IG, the Instagrams. She had to go to all the different states to tell them about Wool. And eventually she starts her own PR company slash investment business with a guy called Tom. If we are naming the guys, FYI, they are important. If we just give their career or what we've coded them as, they are not important. She um, starts up her own PR company with Tom and they call it Lace. He deals with the investment, so he's a little bit of an amber gambler on the stock market and she's like, oh, fine, I'll just do my PR. So at a business event, and again, this is spanning like 10, 20 years. Don't ask me how old these people are at this time. She meets a publishing mogul called Griffin and Griffin is a famous womanizer he's married but him and Judy start to bang well at first she's very good at putting him off because he tries to get her to go to dinner with him at this event and she's like honey I'm at work like I can't do this he says no need to work if I say you're not and she's like no and she said she didn't need that kind of rich man's power play and she didn't appreciate it one bit but then they start to bang and the banging is my 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 I'm just gonna get into it 
He licked her secret places. He tried to lick her ear, but Judy jerked her head away. She couldn't bear that warm, messy wetness. But of course, sex was messy, so she gave in, surrendering to pleasure. He checked where else she liked to be licked, and they found it was almost everywhere. Then suddenly he grew fierce, and so did she, and they had a little wrestling match to see who got to be on top, and he allowed Judy to win. But somehow they fell off the bed and onto the red fox spread, and then she felt his fingers inside her, after which he rimmed her rather noisily, and she didn't mind the warm, messy wetness. Not one bit. Oh! Oh, Judy, it also sounds like she's just covered a body in peanut butter and gone near a dog. Like, he's just <laughs> lapping all over her. But it's exciting because up until this point, and this is 500 pages into this book, Judy's had a basically sexless existence because she's been too busy having a business and looking after her friends, which is good. We like that. Yeah, Judy's very solid on the friendship level. It kind of becomes... It becomes a thing. It becomes a regular thing. He hires her business to do some stuff because they both work a lot. So he's like, we'll work together and then we'll get to see each other. And his wife is also pissed off because his wife knows about all of his affairs. But in this particular instance, I think Judy's in her late 30s by this point. He's not banging like a silly little model or something that's going to be a passing fancy. This is someone on his level. And I think the reason Griffin falls for her is because of what she does next. And this was... I would preface this by saying, I don't think this is sexy. But honestly, I fucking buzzed off this. I loved it. It was so I was like, you go, girl. So... And they were seeing each other a lot. At first, they were discreet, but they were becoming increasingly reckless. His wife must surely know, Judy reasoned, and so did Griffin. She won't say anything. She never does, he told Judy, and she winced. She hated to think of herself as merely one of Griffin's affairs. There was a long silence. That was a very shitty thing to say, she said. And she was only half joking. She wanted to hurt him the way those three words had just hurt and humiliated her. She never does. Because that is a shit thing to say to someone. That's a shit thing to say. And he regrets it. He's like, I shouldn't have said that. Like, that was bad. And then they've had lunch together and he's like, oh, I have to go. I have an appointment. And she's like, no, no, no. You hurt me and I'm not going to let you hurt me again. So fuck your appointment. I'm getting my revenge. So Judy then decides that she's going to punish him. At first, I think he thinks that's a bit sexy. And he's like, oh, okay then. And he kind of plays into it. But then like, (laughs) it gets really real. So she ties him to the bed and starts to undress him a little bit every time he thinks he's gonna be a little bit sexy she jumps back up again and it's like no no no, don't get comfortable so this time she jumps up and she starts tearing away with some shears at his suit because he's like are you not going to undress me and she's like okay then and grabs a massive pair of scissors and starts like slashing his suit off him and then she puts the shears down and she picks up her tights and she rolls them into a ball and stuffs them into his mouth and then gags him with his tie she starts slashing at his boxer shorts and he starts crying because, you know, it's scissors near his penis. She's like, I'm going to punish you to make sure you never do this again. She bent towards his cock and he gets stiff. And then she curled her tongue and flicked at his flesh with butterfly strokes. And then she's like, nope. And she walks off and she comes back in with a bottle of olive oil. 
and she pours like the whole bottle of olive oil over him and she kind of massages his whole body to make him like really limp and like relaxed and then she crouched over griffin's oil slick body and with the tip of her tongue just licked his stiff cock with little cat licking the cream sort of licks after which she knelt astride him and carefully stroked her clitoris with his cock taking absolutely no notice whatsoever of griffin in fact treating him as a sexual object to bring herself to orgasm she's starting to get into it and then she's like "Ah, i fancy a drink and then she pours that on him she puts the ice in her mouth she's like giving him a blowjob with ice in her mouth which he doesn't really like and also then she curled her forefinger inside him and wriggled around a bit feeling for his prostate and when she found it she pushed against it until griffin quickly jerked to a climax i was like i was gonna throw that little bit of ass play straight in there shirley so shocked that they knew what a prostate was Mm. in the 1980s and then she goes and gets a lemon meringue pie from the kitchen and she like smashes that on him that was absolutely mental she was just like this looked like fun bam you've been pied and then she gets dressed and she's like i have an appointment to go to bye and he's like well what about me she's like you're in the boy scouts work it out and she fucks off and leaves that was my favorite thing you were in the boy scouts griffin you work it out she said as she walked out the apartment and he was furious but he was also very impressed like i've met my match he had never been faced with a situation that his power charm and savoir faire were unable to resolve there had been real fury behind what judy did and she hadn't weakened and he loves it he loves it so then we go through a bit where griffin's wife won't give him a divorce and then the kids finally leave home and she's like i want a divorce and he's like fucking ace and then he goes straight to judy's and he's like will you marry me and judy's like in a pure carrie bradshaw moment i couldn't help but wonder could i marry griffin considering the fact that he's a proven cheater and then that's sort of where we end we're gonna leave judy there until we get to the finale so we're gonna move on to maxine the french wonder next so after her time in gestalt she moves to london to study interior design for two years she comes back to paris and sets up her, an interior design company which is super successful which i will say they've all had tremendous luck in the companies that they've set up in this book no one's company fails no one goes into massive debt everyone is just super successful so she gets a client to do up an old french chateau with a large champagne vineyard and she falls in love with the comte whose vineyard it is and he wants to make his champagne as famous as moet or dom perignon charles de chazal is his name and they fall in love and they get married and then we get to what is i thought was one of the sexiest bits of definitely the book and they go on this wine tour because he's like, well, now you're married to a champagneier or whatever the fucking term is. You have to learn about it. So he takes her on a tour of how they make the champagne. She's like, this is going to be really boring. And he's like, I'll keep it as interesting as I can. And I mean, it's, it was interesting. I thought it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting. So like, they're talking about it. And then suddenly he grabbed Maxine's wrist and pulled her into a dark recess under the staircase. He swiftly unbuttoned her primrose jacket, dipped both hands into her lace bra and stopped her gasp of horror with his mouth. She felt his tongue pushing against hers. Then Charles pulled his head back and said in a normal voice the first bottling generally takes place sometime after april and we add little cane sugar to the blend to start a second fermentation he started to kiss her nipples maxine felt physically helpless but as she groaned with reluctant pleasure charles suddenly withdrew his hand buttoned her up as fast as a lady's maid and it sort of goes on like this 
they go around the factory and he'll kind of tell her a bit of a fun fact about champagne and then whip around a corner and start fingering it and stuff and it's great he's like take off your panties off charles ordered giving the lace a vicious tug all the dialogue is him going until dom perignon came along in 1668 bottles were sealed with linen whilst he's got his hand up his skirt they have quite a sexy relationship he says i'm not having you turn into a prim little countess who worries about what people think all the time like my sisters so he wants her to be free and sexy and live her best life so after they are popping bottles they have another sexy bit so essentially what maxine does with this chateau and this vineyard and is she turns it into a sort of hotel slash historical place like chatsworth house she's like this champagne's not going to start making any money anytime soon and we need to do something if we don't find a way to bring money in we're going to lose the house and so she monetizes the house itself and he doesn't really like it but he comes around to it because it's obviously making them the money to live off but on her rise to success he likes her to remember who's actually in charge like he gives her free reign of everything apart from sexually and there's one bit where they're going to a do and he went I don't want you to wear any underwear to the De La Fressange ball tonight I want to know that if I care to fill you at any time you'll be ready for me and Maxine thought they were joking. So they're on their way to this ball, and he goes down as a field, and Maxine's wearing panties. Well, he loses his shit. He ripped them off and flung them to the ground, and then, with his left arm, he held her pressed against the stone balustrade. From the back, they looked like any courting couple, but his fingers were feeling fiercely for her. She was terrified that they'd be seen, but she could not resist Charles' rhythmic fingers. Quickly, he undid his clothes, and she felt him inside her body, demanding her with selfish fierceness that she had never felt from him before after he climaxed he kissed her gently on the lips and said darling in just a few matters i expect to be obeyed by you without question so from then on if he says no panties she wears no panties he likes the fact that when she's doing all this high pressure press stuff he can just give her a look just a little look from across the table and she like blushes because she knows what that look is. Yeah, she'll be like gushing just from his little secret glance. And one of the things as well that it says is that she has to spend a lot of money on lingerie because he likes ripping it <laughs> off her. And so she has this like really high lingerie bill because he's just like fucking it up left, right and centre. That was hot. I thought like... That was hot. It Charles was hot. and Maxine's relationship was pretty hot at the beginning. There's another scene where they have sex in the office and he's like are you worried about people catching us? And she's just giving over to pleasure like, no, no. And he's like, are you worried that your assistant is going to come in and find all of her papers ruffled on the desk because your ass has been on them? You're the Comtesse. You're supposed to be prim and proper. And do you want everyone to know that you're actually this little slut? And she's like, oh, all over the desk. It's hot. But there is only so long that mad sexual passion can last in a marriage. And they've got two kids, three kids. Three kids. At this point, they end up with three kids. And he has an affair with some fucking woman. And she goes to Aunt Hortense and is like, I thought I had this amazing marriage to this guy. And like, I'm working really hard and I've got these kids. And how is he repaying me by having an affair? And Aunt Hortense is like, don't do 
anything. Arnold Tense is the voice of reason here because she knew deep down that he was always going to be with Maxine. I don't condone cheating. I sort of hate this because I'm like, obviously, if someone's cheating on you, don't yeah. stand for it. But she's like, you run a business together. Is causing a scene over this going to be worth it? Or is he eventually going to get bored of her and then you'll have him back? She's also like, the more you kick up a fuss, the more you chase him into her arms. And he's clearly not interested because he's keeping it such a secret. If he's being discreet, it means he wants your marriage to last. Which I think I don't love that. And then ultimately, because alongside absolutely smashing this champagne house business maxine convinces judy to start her own agency she's the one who's like you're doing really well at this you could do it yourself and then maxine's champagne house is one of the big accounts that she has because rich americans love coming over to france and so judy is ultimately the one who talks to charles and it says she didn't appeal to his better nature she didn't appeal to his morals she was like financially you know you're not going to leave maxine so stop fucking her around if you keep fucking her around maxine will leave you and then what's going to happen to your house? And he was like, oh, I do like the house. He comes back to her. They're planning a party and he walks up to Maxine on the terrace and he crosses his lover's name off the guest list and Maxine's like, oh, Charles. And then they're all good again. There's a sidebar in all of this that Nick, you remember Nick, he fancied Judy and then died in Malaysia. And um, His mum comes to visit Maxine because obviously they know that they were all friends way back in the day. And they're playing with Maxine's children and Nick's mum confesses that Nick couldn't have children because when he was very young, he caught the mumps and it spread to his testicles. Remember that, listeners? It sounds like a little side note. It will become important later. <laughs> That's sort of it. That's Maxine. So now we are going to move on to Pagan. Oh, Pagan. So as we discussed, Pagan comes from like English family money. Aristocracy. They own a big house in Cornwall. Pagan does the kind of debutante scene. And a lot of Pagan's storyline is mixed up with Kate's. Pagan's mum has all the social connections, but Kate's dad has the money. So Kate's dad is like, we will pay for everything if you can get them into the right parties and in front of the right people. To be an official quote-unquote debutante, you had to be presented to the Queen. Once you did that, you were expected to do your coming out season. Coming out into society as an eligible woman for marriage. And it involves certain events that we still hold today, like Henley Regatta, the Cambridge-Oxford boat race. Ascot. It is rich people shenanigans. But you can only be presented in front of the King and Queen if a woman presents you who has already been presented. So because Kate's family come from new money, her mum hasn't been presented, whereas Pagan's mum has been presented. So that's the deal that they make. Pagan's grandfather dies, which is very sad for her because she loved her grandfather. He leaves Pagan the house, which Pagan's mum arranges to rent from her to turn it into a health farm. And whilst this is all happening, Kate meets this banker whose dad and money are all tied up in Cairo and they get engaged. So Pagan chaperones Kate to Cairo. Whilst they're in Cairo together, Kate just becomes like a little puppy dog and is like, yes sir, no sir, three bags of sir, please will you love me? Whereas Pagan is dazzling, she's entertaining, she's got 
that confidence that only comes with being in the aristocracy. Yeah, and the banker's dad basically goes, you've bet on the wrong horse here, son. This Kate girl isn't worth it. You should go for Pagan because he thinks because Pagan's old money, she's a better bet and she'll have more money. Whereas we know that Kate's family are better off. They're fucking minted, yeah. But he goes like, we need to get you with her instead. And then they hatch this absolutely vile plan. Uh, I hate it. Where he separates Kate from Pagan for one night. When he speaks to Kate on her own, he's like, mate, I'm not really feeling this. Maybe we should not be engaged. Maybe it'd be better for everyone if you just get the fuck out of Cairo, you get on the next plane. And she's like, what about Pagan? And he's like, don't ruin Pagan's holiday because we didn't work out. I'll sort it out with her, but like you're going home now and Pagan is staying here. And remember kids, there wasn't social media. They didn't have phones. You couldn't WhatsApp your pals. You had to write letters. And so she packs off back to London and Pagan is like, where's Kate gone? And he goes, oh, she dumped me. She dumped me and it's really sad and she's fucked off straight back to London. She said to let you know that you should stay because you're having a nice time. And he plays the wounded party. He's like, I'm the victim in this. And then subsequently from this, he spends, I couldn't tell you how long. Years. Years, probably years. Years. Intercepting the letters between the two of them and vetting the phone calls and stuff so that they don't actually speak to each other. And he successfully manages to split them up and then woo Pagan and then marry Pagan and live with her in Cairo without either of them actually knowing what had happened. And it's scummy as fuck and I hated it. He's a scummy bastard. To make matters worse, he's also a selfish lover. Poor Pagan, he's a pomp and dumb kind of dude. He doesn't do any of the foreplay. She says, after a couple of months of their marriage, she tentatively said, could you possibly wait for me? He immediately stiffened and said he didn't know what she meant and accused her of being frigid. Amably, Pagan agreed that she might be. It's just that I haven't been so far, she added. Robert turned purple with rage, quoting the Kinsey report, which said the average man took two and a half minutes to climax, which meant that she was getting 30 seconds more than the average, didn't it? What a lucky woman. Oh my God. That extra 30 seconds, babe, you should be lucky. She decides to test the water, though, by having affairs. And she also, when he says this to her three minutes or whatever, she's like, well, when I masturbate, I used an egg timer and it really doesn't take that much longer for me to get there. Five minutes of what it takes. If you could hang on for two more minutes for me, like I've done the experiment, I've got the receipts, babe. If you could hang on for two more minutes, I'd be happy. And he is not willing to do that. No, he says you've got a filthy whore's mouth and she says you've got a filthy schoolboy's mind. I expect my mother's generation would put it daintily. They'd say you were insensitive or didn't understand a woman's needs or something. But for once, Robert, I'm speaking plainly because I want there to be no doubt in what I'm saying. I don't want you to double think this conversation into something that suits you. I am saying that I don't want to be used for sex. I want to be loved. I want intimacy and sensuality and mutual concern. Not a quick stab, thank you. Yes, Pagan. He's such a dick and he won't talk to her to the point where they have to get a divorce. And she comes back and lives in the little, like, cottage at the bottom of the garden of the big stately home health farm. And she just becomes a sad, reclusive alcoholic. And it's horrible. After years of being an alcoholic, Kate turns up at the door and Kate's like, 
Guess what, bitch? We've been swindled. We've been duped because Kate had bumped into a mutual acquaintance from Cairo who'd gone, isn't it terrible what that guy did to Pagan? And she's been like, what? And he's like, oh, did you not hear about how he, he deliberately split you up and then was horrible to Pagan for years? And Kate was like, oh my God. I need to sort some shit out. So she turns up and she essentially, like she's the the best friend ever. I think Kate and Julie are the two most solid friends in the group. They're the girls who are like holding your hair back when you're being sick on a night out and being like, he's not worth it, hon. So she takes care of her when she's going through like withdrawal. She hires a cleaner to come and look after her. She goes and yells at her mum. Kate takes really, really good care of her. And while Pagan is drying out is the phrase they keep using. Um, While Pagan's drying out, she runs into a man on a windswept clifftop in Cornwall and it's all very romantic. This is very Paul Dark. And he is in town because he's finishing up writing a very serious academic book about cancer. And he's a little bit older and I think it's said that he's bald but he sweeps her off her feet. They keep having rendezvous and rendezvous because he has to leave eventually. He's only staying at the local pub until one day they do the sexiest trope of all. They get caught in the rain. Oh, they get caught in the rain and they come in and they try and warm themselves up. And the only way that you can warm yourself up is on someone else. And they have a little sexy bath together. And then they're in front of the fire. It's very that. So they get married. But then while they are on their honeymoon, after Pagan's been like, oh my God, Kate, he's so fit. He's such a the good lover. Is- Mm. we're gonna go on our honeymoon we're gonna have so much sex and then he has a heart attack on their honeymoon and one of the things in his treatment is they say he can't get too excited because it might fuck his heart up again so he's not allowed to have sex i questioned my science bitches about Mm -hmm. this and one of them said well i guess it's a form of cardio if his doctor said no cardio then that's a no but she decides she wants a child and she's like, I love him. He's a bit older than me. This health scares really freaked me out. I don't want to lose him. And so she's like, I want to have a kid. She enlists Kate to help her do the period maths. I've got one shot to seduce him. It needs to be the most fertile time of the month. And this is said by Shelley Comran, the only sexual bit in the book, which is real. She was the Kate in this situation and she helped her friend seduce her heart attack husband to have a child. And it worked. And then she gets pregnant. And she gets pregnant. And that's great because we want Pagan to be happy because Pagan's had a rough Like, ride. Pagan's had a really shit time. But she's lying down and she's talking to her husband and they find out it's a girl. And she's like, all I've ever wanted is to have a girl with big, beautiful brown eyes. And he's like, raise your hand if you did this in science at, like, pre-GCSE level. You know the big B, little B, big B, big yeah. B, little B, little B. So he's saying blue eyes are a recessive gene. So because they've both got blue eyes, there's not really a shot in hell that they'll have a child with brown eyes. Important. So that's Pagan. She's happily married. Oh, and her husband also works for like a cancer charity and she does a lot of fundraising for him. That's her thing. So we're moving on to Kate now. And Kate is obviously really bummed about the fact that Pagan's married the guy that she was supposed to be engaged to. She doesn't know about anything else. But she moves on and she ends up marrying this guy who's an architect. And it's all this sort of Soho, Carnaby Street, 60s artistic shit. And they get married. And Kate gets pregnant three times 
and ends up having a miscarriage in the later stages of her pregnancy, which is really quite rare because I think it's one in four women have a miscarriage within the first trimester of their pregnancy. I say, quote unquote, a normal occurrence. Because that's why they tell you not to tell people for like a set amount of time in case something goes wrong and you then have to untell everyone. But Kate's having them late. It's fucking horrible and after the first one the doctor says get pregnant again as quick as possible get back on the horse and then after three the doctors are like maybe you should probably stop because it's not gonna happen which rules kate out as a mother option we think we assume and also her partner doesn't really seem to give a shit he's more interested in his work and so she throws this motherly love into rescuing Pagan, and as we've seen, that's successful. But one thing we've learned about Kate is that she has this sort of sexual frustration inside of her. She can't orgasm. Six years of marriage to this guy, she still hasn't had an orgasm, but her husband doesn't notice, because why would men? So then her husband one day, they're talking about the death of Marilyn Monroe, and her husband then comes out, and he's put some of her makeup on. And it kind of passes it off as like a jokey thing she's like ha ha okay cool go and take it off now and he's like no i want to make love like this yeah he says toby loves looking pretty toby loves dressing up like this but promises a secret between two girlfriends it becomes a thing it starts off with just a little bit of makeup and then he starts putting on her underwear and then he starts buying his own lingerie kate's very confused because again you have to remember this book it's set in the 1960s and she's like oh we know as they call them queers but this doesn't seem to be what that is she's like he wants to have sex with me like he wants to have sex with his wife wearing this get up and playing these characters seems to be the thing that gets her the most is he has these two personas he puts on when he's in this state and one of them is like essentially Liza Minnelli cabaret character and then one of them's like a very sort of virginal innocent little high-pitched voice white ankle socks kind of vibe the problem she has with it is it reminds her of Pagan's mum coming on to her when she was a teenager and how much that freaked her out at the time and now her husband and she's like after six years like where has this been the whole time it's also she's like why has he chosen the these two things to represent femininity. Why has he chosen the slut and the virgin? Essentially, is what it yeah. boils down to. Why does he think this represents all women? And eventually it just becomes too much for her. I feel sad because her husband couldn't be who he really wanted to be. But at the same time, Kate never consented. They didn't have a conversation in which he went, I'd like to try this, please. And she went, yes or no. So she leaves him. And then she just walks into a job as a journalist on Fleet Street. And then this is, we're going to start skimming again because quite a lot happens to Kate. She becomes a journalist. She gets sent to a war zone to kind of accidentally become a war reporter for a bit. She writes a book about being in a war zone. Judy markets it. She moves to New York to start a woman's magazine becomes an absolute publishing sensation smashing it and when she goes to new york to start verve the up-and-coming women's magazine for women who know their shit it's very cosmo even though they mention cosmo in the book they're like oh it's not cosmo and you're like it is it is cosmo and she goes to work with judy and tom who we mentioned who is judy's business partner 
to a priest said you should remember Tom. And Tom turns out to be an absolute hun, even if he does have a bit of a gambling problem on the stock market. He is everything she needs. He understands her neuroses, her rejection issues. And he says to her, I don't want you faking orgasms with me because what's the point? Like, tell me what you want and then mm. you won't have to fake orgasms because they try these different things. And I think I liked the bit where they kind of really threw themselves into this like really lustful erotic scene and then afterwards he was like how was that and she was like I think we both know that sort of didn't really work and he was like cool what would work there's one bit and I'm gonna read it out because as we always say in these books the synonyms and the similes and everything it's just they're just everything so it says she waited to fill his lips on her small secret slit his tongue gently caressing the pale pink seed pearl his face against the delicate folds that surrounded it. Pink upon pink, soft sucking flesh, swirling, exquisite oblivion, falling into a caressing sea. I have never described my vagina as a caressing sea. Maybe you should. It sounds lovely. I'm gonna. The main thing that he's like, so what do you want? Like, what will do it for you? And she's like, I sort of want proper cheesy in front of a roaring fire in the countryside candlelight and wine romance. White stallion shit. Yeah, yeah. I want the full romance novel fantasy. And he's like, we'll do that then. And they do. And he takes it to Connecticut and he makes her come and it's beautiful. She comes in Connecticut, oh yeah, yeah, she comes in Connecticut. He's really nice. He's like exactly what she needs. They get married and have a great nice. So that's Kate until we get to the finale. So now we're going to delve into Lily, who is the younger woman in this who is trying to work out which one is her mother. And she has a terrible, terrible, horrible life. We are going to go through this as quickly as possible because it's fucking depressing. It's pretty rough and it's not very sexy. So we're going to we're gonna give you some bullet points because there's not a lot of sex to delve into. There's a lot of sex, but it's not sexy. So Lily is fostered after whoever gave birth to her in Switzerland by a lady called Angelina Dessa. Angelina marries a Hungarian dude whose name is Felix Kosovko and that's where she gets the name Lily. Her name on her birth certificate is Elizabeth but because Felix calls her Lily, that's the name she's kept. They get caught up in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. Lily and Angelina and Felix are trying to escape Hungary to go back to Switzerland. On the way through the Austrian border, everyone gets shot or mauled to death by dogs. And I will say this now, there are no such thing as bad boys, just bad dog owners. Dogs are pure. But Lily escapes, she goes and knocks on a door and gets put into like the refugee system where she gets sent to Paris and adopted by a very mean couple who are cross because she's younger than they expected and she's not very well and she can't do the housework, which is what they wanted her for. They just wanted a maid and someone to look after them in their old age. But in the process, because when Lily was being processed through the refugee system, she was seven, she was traumatised and she wasn't very well for a lot of it. Full of pneumonia. When they said, what's your name she said lily kosovogo or whatever it is not elizabeth dessen so she gets completely lost disappears off all of those records the mean couple are mean and so she kind of finds refuge in an older man we don't really get much information about him but he picks her up outside a cinema and starts taking her to this hotel and they have this regular date buying her presents telling her she's beautiful things she's never heard before because she's because she's a poor refugee abused orphan he gives her the pill 
but she stops taking it because it makes her feel sick and she thinks what's the worst that's gonna happen what's the worst that's gonna happen baby she gets knocked up and he's like fuck right okay well we're gonna get an abortion for you but he doesn't pay for it he fucks off this leads her to a man called Serge because the woman who organises the abortion for us is like, you're very pretty, you can go and be a model for my pal and that will pay off your abortion. So Serge is a photographer who takes... Nudies. Essentially, he grooms her, he isolates her away from other people. He Beats her. It starts by taking sexy pictures, then it turns into making porn... But then she actually manages to get an actual couple of acting jobs in these, like, erotic French films. She's got talent, baby. She's a star. In the process of all this, of Serge and her burgeoning movie career, she comes across three of the four women. So she does an interview with Kate, which, through no fault of Kate's own, gets completely changed. You know when they misquote celebrities to make them say one thing when they actually said another thing? Because they've got that one soundbite. That's yeah. what they do for Because Kate's done this quite sensitive interview with her where she talks about her past. And then Kate hands the copy in and they're like, this isn't sensational enough. Someone else is going to tweak it up. And Kate's like, cool, I don't want to do that. But it gets published under her name. And she's not happy about it. So Lily thinks that Kate's just done an absolute hack job on her. She then meets Judy because Judy's PR company is used to bolster one of the films she's in. So they also tie in with an emerald company. So Lily has to go around all of the US wearing emeralds and she does it, but she gets sick because these tours are hard, travelling from state to state and her English isn't the best. So she's in Chicago and there's a little arsewipe who's trying to make her feel inferior and she's like, absolutely fuck you fuck this emeralds are unlucky fuck everyone i hate you all i'm sick i'm tired and you're a little man who's belittling me so judy who was on tour with her goes what the fuck have you done go back out there apologize i will sort this lily runs away from tour and goes back to serge really upset serge couldn't go on tour with her because serge has syphilis, syphilis. So after this... She has a full breakdown. She has to go and recuperate in the Mediterranean. And he's not allowed there, but he has a nurse who's spying on her. So while she's there, she meets... And I don't know what he does. I just put wealthy Greek boatman. This nice man who is older and he owns a yacht and he's got a lot of money and he takes a lot of interest in her and realises that she's just been taking advantage of her entire he's life. He's also not trying to bang her on the first date. And when she says like, oh, I can't stay tonight, I need to go home, he's like, cool, I'll take you home then. Yeah. And she's like, cool, that's nice. He gives her a cockatoo. Literally a cockatoo. Not a cock or two, a cockatoo. And then she's on his yacht when Serge turns up and is like, I heard you being a little slut with this Greek boatman. And the Greek boatman's like, you can fuck off, off mate. And they ride off into the sunset together. They don't get married, but they're together for years and he sets her up with a nice life and he gives her this care and attention she's never had before. In a weird way, the fatherly figure she's always looked for, but can also bang at the same time. And he has loads of famous artwork, which he leaves in her name. They're having a great time until one day he dies in in a car crash and Lily's in such a state of shock. While she is in hysterical shock, the 
Boatman's lawyer gets her to sign some papers, which he tells her are for like releasing the body or whatever it is. But when she kind of comes back from her state of shock, she realises that we think in the pay of Greek Boatman's children, like family who don't like her, that he's just fleeced her for everything that Greek Boatman ever gave her. So she has to go back to acting. And she does, and she makes a name for herself because she's so beguiling and wonderful. Um, so she gets a little bit more famous, she makes a bit more money, and she decides to go on her um, holidays because I think there's something like 80% of French people go on holiday in France because it's got fucking everything. She goes and has a little holiday in Maxine's chateau. So this is the third of our four women that she's having a run-in with. And Maxine's buzzing. Because Lily's mega famous. It's like Gwyneth Paltrow coming to your gaff. But while Lily is at Maxine's chateau, she fucks Maxine's son. So, anyone who's been paying attention might realise that this is a teeny little bit of potential incest. Because at this point, we don't know who the mum is. But we know it's one of them. And as I say, I thought for a big chunk of it, it probably was Maxine simply because of the French connection. So she fucks Maxine's son, and honestly, it's one of the hottest bits it's in the book. It's weirdly hot, isn't it? The problem is, I'm going to say it up front, you do find out afterwards that he's 15 and she's 24, and that makes it weird. But at the time, you don't know. She thinks he's probably, like, 18, 19. But he's good. Like, he's really good. Apparently the French are. Because I think she says to Maxine, when she's like, you fucked my 15-year-old son, she's like, I don't think it was his first time, hun. He knew what he was doing. And they are having a great time. They're by a pond. Like, not a pond. That sounds disgusting. They're by a lake. They've gone for a beautiful walk in the grounds. It's just what Lily needs to make her come alive again, literally, after the death of the sexy Greek older boatman. She needs a younger man to revive, and the younger man is like, I find you sexy, which Lily needs. With the bit with the sexy boatman, you never get any sex stuff because it, although they do have a sexual relationship, you never see it. The only way you see it is when she's having sex with Maxine's son and she's like, his body was not old and wrinkly. He was young and fit. She wanted to feel him inside her and he like groans, Lily, Lily, Lily. Like, he's really fucking keen. It must be nice to have someone that's that excited to have sex with you. And then Maxine loses her absolute shit, as you would do when you found out your 15-year-old son had sex in your garden. But also, they get papped. They get papped hard. It's all over the newspapers. And Lily sort of... She goes into a shame spiral. She spent her whole life being exploited by people and not being able to trust anybody. And this one thing that happened that seemed to be quite good for her then got ruined as well. So she's not having a great time. So she places for a while. And whilst this happens, one of her films goes, quote-unquote, viral as we call it today. And it gets seen by none other than Abdullah, the king of Sidon now. And he's like, get her over here. I don't care how you do it. I don't care what you say to her. Get her over here. So Lily goes over and she's like, okay, this is nice. It's luxury like I've never seen. And then she meets Abdullah. And there's this weird sexual chemistry between the two of them. He's like very taken with And obviously we know he's got a bit of a thing for white women to get revenge on the West. But he also... He's just an enamoured. Just, he's just like obsessed with her. And then she stays for like a year because they just get right into it. They do. So, like, it says here, she felt his lips on her dark hair, her slender neck, and then her mouth as effortlessly he swung into his arms and strode toward the silken couches. It was a violent passion, a total abandon, such as she had never experienced. But, as we said, Abdullah 
is a fucking sex god. A legitimate sex god. In the same way that Lily's storyline is, Abdullah's storyline is all the way through this book. There's one scene which I think is very, very famous, even though it's quite brief. We learn some of the odd teachings of Abdullah's sex goddery. So he leads his women through an erotic crash course, which culminated in his sensuous piastoris stance. He's tied the woman to the bed, and then there's a bowl of goldfish, which always seemed to be at his bedside. He would quickly scoop out one little fish and swiftly push the wriggling creature into the girl. At this point, she generally stiffened and shrieked with surprise, but Abdullah threw his body on top of hers and held her hard against the mattress until she relaxed nah. and was able to enjoy the strange erotic sensations as she felt the little fish move inside nah. her body. And then she comes and then he nah. sucks the fish back out of her. Nah, like, if you are with someone and they try and put a fish on you, right, if that's your thing, fucking brilliant, do it. We're all here for it. But no, what about the fish? No, don't do it. There's probably toys you can get to replicate the fish's sensation. Okay, I retract my last statement. Get a toy that feels like a fish, throw it up there, take it out. Don't Don't abuse abuse animals. animals. Don't abuse goldfish. Why the fuck are you putting a fish up a woman's pussy? That's not right. No, wasn't into that. She goes to Sardan. She stays with Abdullah for a year. They end up having an argument and she decides to come home because he can't marry her. Because she's white. And they get into a bit of an altercation because the new American ambassador or something is is a friend of hers. It's someone she's met before and they have a hug and she's like, oh my God, it's you. It's crazy to see someone from home here. They want to go for steaks and he's like, I've got the best steaks flown over from Texas. Come on over. Abdullah goes mad and is like, I can't have you hugging other men and going for dinner with other men and she's like I can't go and see my mate and he's like no you can't and she's like cool I'm I'm out of here then because he can never marry her he can never really commit to her so why is she here she goes back to films she does a film on which she meets a lovely man called Simon lovely Simon who takes good care of her and Simon is the man who helps her find her parentage we get back to the hotel room the five women together and Lily going I'll repeat it again which one of you bitches is my mother and they all freeze they're all scared it's a secret they've held between them for 30 years and Lily secretly hopes it's Pagan because she hasn't pissed Pagan off she's pissed everyone else off like Pagan's the only one she's not had a very public fight with so she's like and Pagan seems really nice she's also like oh my god I hope it's not Maxine because then I fucked my own brother and one of the things that the detectives and her partner warn her of is they might all try and pin it on Judy because Judy's the only one that's not married and it would make less of a scandal for her to have an illegitimate movie star daughter than it would any of the others. But it turns out... It is Judy. It actually is Judy. It is Judy. Which wasn't what anyone expected, I think, because we never saw Judy at that point have a relationship. It was the other three who were running around with boys and that's why you're going, oh, who could it be? Which of these boys got them pregnant? This is where I got annoyed because I was like, Judy, this is the Judy's plot line. So I thought Judy was covering. But it turns out it was Judy. And then she says, well, who's my dad then? And I literally wrote, we've had 700 pages working out who her mum is. We're going to have 40 working out who her dad is. And it's a little out of left field. Judy, when she worked at the hotel, we go through a scene where Judy bumps into one of their hotel's 
occupants. And she is tired. She's going to school during the day, is working through the night. She gets no rest. She's being yelled at left, right and centre. She's tired and she's stressed and she drops a tray or something and smashes some glasses and ends up having this run-in with one of the occupants of the hotel who overpowers her and rapes her. And that's a, not a pleasant scene. And then we find out from kind of through Judy's eyes, being at one of these parties that's held at the hotel and seeing her friends with all the boys that they like, Pagan walks in with Prince Abdullah and Judy goes, fuck, it was you. And she never tells them. She never tells any of them because she doesn't want to upset Pagan. No. And because obviously he's a prince. So that's her secret. That's her big secret that she's carried with her for her entire life. And she continues to carry it with her because when Lily says, who was my dad? She went... It was my friend Nick. He was a nice boy and he died in the war and he was a lovely, lovely man and you would be very lucky to have had him as your dad. And then all the other girls start to do the math. Three of them have a separate little thing for why they suspect this may not be true. Because they've never known. They all decided as a group that they would be responsible for this child because it could have been any one of them that got pregnant. They all chipped in with the medical bills. They said that when Judy was in a position to go and get the child back, she would do. Yeah, they work out how to do it and they do because... Not to sound rude, but they're all kind of fucking rich. Other than Judy, they're all minted. They're all rich. But the three big issues are, as Maxine knows, Nick was infertile. Mm -hmm. As Kate knows, he was with her on the night that she's claiming they created Lily and that he couldn't get it up. And she was like, I don't think that at that time of night he would have gone straight from my bed to Judy's. And as Pagan knows, both Nick and... Judy had blue eyes and Lily has brown eyes. So this can't be the case. And Pagan's like, but that's impossible. And they're all like, what? And she's like, it's impossible that anyone could ever forget your father. He was a good man. It's nice. I thought it was quite a nice little tribute to Nick in that he becomes the linchpin that wraps it all up. Yeah. And gives Lily what Lily has spent her entire life knowing that she was adopted and believing that one day her real mum would come and get her and it would be okay. And Judy looks at this girl and goes, I can't tell you the truth. I can't tell you you banged your dad. That's fucking weird. There is one scene where Judy's like hugging her and she's like, all I can think of my mind is incest. I literally wrote at the end, all these little details together is so satisfying. Like Shirley knew from page one, she knew what she was doing. Oh, but to... Bang your own dad. So, Hannah, I'm going to ask the big question for this book. How wet did you get? Were you like the ocean? How wet did you get? Were you drier than the desert? How wet did you get? Did this book make you come? I'm going to give this one like a seven or an eight because as much as there's quite a lot of plot to it, it's not all yeah, sex. It's a chunky boy. And there's quite a lot of sex in it that's maybe not as much fun as I would have wanted it to be. There are some quite spicy scenes that I enjoyed. The Sexy Champagne Tour was a good one. That's the highlight for me, the Sexy Champagne Tour. I had like such a good time reading it that even the bits that weren't sexy, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I've just loved it. It was really good. What would you give it? Maybe like a six. And the only reason I'm dropping it slightly is because I think I do need to take points off for like all the child 
pornography sort of stuff like when Lily was 13 so that's sort of why because the rest of it I don't want everyone thinking that I condone child pornography <laughs> because I gave it a seven I just chose to look at those bits as plot rather than as sex yeah and I think that it was all very well written like everything was laced and intertwined and for me reading it sometimes I'd be like oh I just can't be bothered but the second I opened it up and got into it I was like I can't stop reading this book but obviously as always you don't have to take our word for it Molly what did Amazon think? Amazon I always go for the negative ones I'm really sorry I I can't oh it's more fun though so I found two for balance so this one is a five star one by Elizabeth de Avies she's overcapitalised (laughs) and it said read again after 40 years having not read this book since it was first published I saw it in my Kindle library and purchased it on a whim I normally read murder mysteries and thrillers all I can say is wow I so enjoyed reading this again especially from the perspective of now being 70 years old I couldn't put it down even though I was really busy I just had to carry on reading until the end also I never review books I have read but felt moved to do it just this once a 70-year-old woman liking it. You know, it's good to see that they're still getting out there. Being 70 doesn't mean you don't have needs anymore. And then to contrast it, I found one by a person called Osha. This was actually written in April 2020, so a slightly more modern take on it. A story of child abuse told to titillate readers. Read this first when I was about 12, and I thought I was being terribly sophisticated reading such a racy book. I bought it again to amuse myself during lockdown, and was shocked to think I ever found it entertaining. All the lead characters suffer some sort of humiliating sexual assault at some stage, and this is written as being par for the course. The treatment of Lily as the protagonist rather than the victim is the worst part. The racy details the book is so famous for is basically a description of child sexual abuse. I know the 80s were a different time, but a 13 year old child being forced into pornography was never acceptable and never once has anyone other than the unfortunate Lily made to feel guilty about it. This copy has ended up in the recycling bin. Oh, I'm glad they recycled it. It's a hefty book. It saved a lot of trees. I don't necessarily disagree. No. As I say, I think I didn't consider the bits that were sexy to be the bits that were Lily being abused. I think they all know it was wrong, apart from Serge, but Serge wasn't portrayed as a good character. What did the good people of Goodreads have to say about it? I picked as someone who said, before you read my review, sidle up to your mother and ask her about the goldfish scene in Lace. Watch her blush. (laughs) I doubt there is a woman alive who lived through the 80s without reading or watching Lace. And then goes on to say that it's like a massive classic, one of the first like bonk busters. They were like, I think it's really reductive to say it's like just a bit of a saucy book because there's so much more to it. And they were like, I would go as far as to call it a feminist classic. And I wouldn't necessarily disagree. I think that's... No, I think because they showed the four women, um, well, five, because Lily has her own career really as well, doesn't she? All five of them um, being the top of what they can do. And as well, there's a whole section of the book which we skipped over because it wasn't sexy where they're talking about money and how women aren't taught how to deal with money because there was an expectation that your husband would do it for you. But if you get divorced from that husband, you're then stuck. Kate says at one point, because it's after her divorce, she's like, oh, a marriage licence costs like five shillings, but a divorce costs like two grand. Yeah, exactly. Um, It's almost as if marriage is made up by male divorce lawyers. And so I thought that was, as we say, not something we talked a great deal about, but still really important. I think people still don't talk about money enough. So yeah, feminist classic, mixed reviews, 
we had fun thank you for listening i know that might have sounded a lot of nonsensical because it was a fucking huge book but we tried our best as ever and we hope you had a sexy time listening to us talk about sexy things so if you have enjoyed it you can give us a rating a review a little subscribe wherever you get your podcasts if you've got any comments questions book recommendations to make you can get in touch with us we're on all the social media at LitGagPod on Twitter, at LiterallyGaggingPod on Instagram, LiterallyGaggingPodcast on Facebook, LiterallyGaggingPod at gmail.com for the email. I'd also like to give a shout out to the one person who listens to us on Stitcher. You're a hero. Thank you for that. And also all the people who listen to us who aren't direct personal friends of ours. We love you yeah. guys, but we also love the people we don't know because whenever someone we don't know comments or says something... We get well excited. We will screenshot it and send it and go, do you know this person? No, I don't know this person. Oh my God, it's a new person. And they're like one person who is listening in the Netherlands and the one person who's listening in Canada and... And the Philippines. Yeah. The Philippines. Thank you. Next week... It will be our 10th episode and we're going to be doing a little special where we have been reading some self-published coronavirus-specific erotica. Sexy, sexy COVID. <laughs> and it was a time. So please join us for our 10th episode coronavirus special. If you want to read them before the episode, they are called Quarantine teen teen is in teenager quarantine see what they did there covid 69 and sex in the time of coronavirus you can go and find them on amazon i think they were all like none of them were more than They're three all, like, pounds. Two pounds yeah support some self-published writers they're working hard tune back in next week to see what we thought of those books i think that's it as ever stay safe wash your hands before you have a wank Wash your hands after a wank. Stay clean, stay alert. And wear suntan lotion out there today. It is hot, kids. We've been hibernating for so long that I think everyone is basically as pale as me and Molly now. So get some sun cream on if you really need it. And thank you for joining us yet again. Yeah, it's been a fun time. Thank you, Molly. Thank you, you, Hannah. Next week. See you next week. Have a great time, kids. Bye. A big thank you to Bobby Bates for doing all of our artwork and our logo and everything, to Bethany Southworth for our jingle, and the other incidental music is from Kevin McLeod of Incompetech, the king of royalty-free jams and saviour of media-to-do students the world over.